you know, I go to conferences now about misinformation, about fake news and what we can do about it. And what I hear over and over is we've got to give people the knowledge to allow them to decide for themselves. And I just want to shoot myself every time I hear that because people can't decide for them. I mean, don't ask me to make decisions about what the U.S. military should be doing in Syria. Like, that's a guaranteed way to dis- make the country even worse than it already is, right? <laughs> I can't decide for myself. That's why we elect people who presumably rely on trusted, informed experts. David Yoakum here. I bet you think you know how a bicycle or a toilet works. But I also bet if I asked you to really explain it, diagram it out, draw the mechanics, you couldn't do it. Today we're joined by Steve Sloman, a professor of cognitive science at Brown University and author of The Knowledge Illusion, to dive into the psychology behind how we know things, and in particular why we so easily feel we know things that we really don't. And for me, this really gets important when we're talking about how such overconfidence disrupts our ability to interact with each other, how it may drive problems of political polarization. If you think you know what we're going to talk about, well, then this podcast is really for you, because you don't. Welcome to 30,000 Leagues. Give us a little bit of a 101. What is the knowledge illusion? The knowledge illusion itself is the fact that people think they understand things better than they do. And in particular, they think they understand how things work better than they do. The primary evidence for this comes originally from a study by Rosenblatt and Kyle in which they asked people how well they understood standard artifacts like zippers and ballpoint pens on toilets. And people thought they understood them pretty well. And then they said, well, okay, explain them. How do they work? And People had essentially nothing to say. They couldn't explain how they worked at all. So then when they again asked, how well do you understand them? People said, "Hmm, not as well as I thought. They punctured their illusion of understanding simply by asking them to explain. And we showed this is also true in the political domain. That if you ask people about policies, you can easily puncture their illusion of understanding simply by asking them, what the outcome of the policies would be and how the policies would produce those outcomes. So this is some evidence that people live in this illusion of understanding uh, how things work, when in fact what we as individuals know is relatively constrained. I mean, we all clearly have our areas of expertise, right? We know a lot about how our kitchen works, Right? We know better than anyone else how our kitchen works or where to find our underwear and our wardrobe. Right? We are the world's experts on those topics. And sometimes we're experts on things that other people care about more, like how cars work or how to do statistical tests or whatever our narrow areas of expertise are. But they're always narrow. And whenever we do anything, we depend on the expertise of others. And this is one where... If you're listening, you should sort of play along. I mean, one of the, one of the things you did in your book is prompted the reader to like think of specific things, like how does your toilet work, and like actually pause now if you're listening and try to explain that whoever is sitting next to you, or draw the sketch of a bike, you know, draw the two wheels, draw the frame, draw the handlebar and the seat, and now the question is, where do the gears and pedal go? Draw that before you look at a bike and see if you can get it right. 
And to my, my annoyance, I got this wrong. <laughs> I was very angry at you whenever that happened. You're not the first person who's been angry with me. So. <laughs> Do you just annoy people all the time, asking them to explain? Basic I, I've items, made a career items? of annoying people, David. Yes, I, uh, I'm good at annoying. Because even even on your everyday examples of the things you do know, like I, in the kitchen, I know where my forks and stuff go, but it, I don't know how the toaster works, really. I mean, I know those little wires get hot in there, but you know, for just about any appliance in the kitchen, if you press me to explain it in any amount of detail, there again, the sort of shallowness of the understanding starts to pop up pretty fast. Right. It's important to understand that, yes, we are relatively ignorant, but the important phenomenon is, in my mind is that we don't know how ignorant we are. We think we understand, even though we don't. Well, why is that? Well, I think it's because we confuse other people's understanding with our own. So we think we understand how the toaster works, because if the toaster breaks, there's someone we can call to fix it. Or we can buy a new one, because there are other people who understand how toasters work and who are able to produce them. I think the general lesson is that when we think about cognitive functioning, we should think about the functioning of a community as as opposed to what's going on in an, in an individual's head. And what's some of the empirical evidence behind this? So it turns out that if you give people access to Google, so it's in the environment, they've just used it, they've answered questions with it, and then you say, I want you to answer a question um, without Google, people will think it's more likely they can answer the question uh, than if they haven't had recent experience with it. So the mere presence of the internet in the environment makes people feel that they know more. Um, and Even when you're better. asking them to answer it without using the internet. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do, um, do you think people would get more arrogant about this if they're when they're carrying their iPhone around? Uh, um so there's fascinating evidence about iPhones. The thing about iPhones is that not only are they a source of information, they're also a source of distraction. So I think you're absolutely right that you feel smarter when you have your iPhone around. And, and the evidence for that is when it's not around, right? And then you feel like, oh, my God, how am I going to know what Willie Mays' batting average was <laughs> in, you know, 19? I actually don't even know when Willie Mays played. You can pull um, out your phone now if you like. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it absolutely gives us that feeling of feeling smarter. And, you know, there's good reason for it, because in a sense, we are smarter, right, when we have our iPhone. That is, we do make use of these other sources of information, right? Like, people aren't wrong when they fail to distinguish other people's knowledge from theirs, because generally, we have access to other people's knowledge. And generally, people are more than happy to share their knowledge. Some people share too much knowledge, right? So... Yeah, we're smart. The thing about iPhones is that they're also very distracting. So if you give people a general knowledge test or an IQ test and you ask them to do it with their phone beside them, even if it doesn't blink and you don't get any messages, people do worse than if their phone is in their pocket and they can't see it. And they do worse in that case than if their phone is in another room. Right. So just sort of the awareness that your phone is present is a kind of distraction, even if it makes you feel smarter. It totally makes sense to me why we'd want to have a type of 
cognitive division of labor, if you will. I'm glad that I don't have to know everything about the toaster and that somebody else can figure that out. But it does strike me as weird that I would still slip into thinking that I did. I mean, it seems like you could have that awareness that you don't know everything and still benefit from the ability to pull out a phone to go to your friends. Why do you think the illusion aspect of this persists? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And my guess is that the fact that maintaining the source of information is itself a significant cognitive burden, right? So think about what we'd have to know in order to not have the illusion. We'd have to know exactly what we know and what we don't know, right? As it stands, all we have to know is a general sense of what information is available to us, what information we can access. But if we kept track of what we do know and what we don't know, that would entail mapping all of our knowledge into an, an index that tells us what's in our head and presumably what's in your head and, and what's in Mary's head and what we're going to have to go to the internet to find out. So it would be an enormous cognitive burden to keep track of all that. And in fact, if we were keeping track of all that, why not just have all the knowledge in our heads? The world is incredibly complex. So you take the simplest thing, a ballpoint pen. There's so many ways to analyze a ballpoint pen, right? Like you could be a master of the metallurgy involved. You could be a master of the fluid dynamics involved. You could be a master of the kinematics involved with hands that hold these things. You could be a master of the economics involved with selling them. And as soon as you go into any of these topics, then, you know, there's a deep well of other stuff that you could, you could learn. So even ballpoint pens are incredibly complex, never mind policy issues that people disagree about. If we were to keep track of what we know and what others know in order to not suffer from this illusion of understanding, then we would have to essentially maintain as much information as would be required to have the knowledge itself. I mean, there is one other place you could land where you weren't still keeping track of the inventory, which is to just walk around feeling like you were mostly ignorant about everything. Why not <laughs> land on that side of the aisle? Well, sometimes, you know, I, sometimes I feel that way and uh, <laughs> other people feel that way sometimes too. I, I think you want to distinguish our kind of emotional um, state from the information that we use to accomplish things. I think of the knowledge illusion as not a fact about our self-esteem, right? It's not a fact about how good we feel about our knowledge or how bad we feel about our knowledge. I mean, your point is, is well taken, right? Often we don't feel very confident in particular circumstances. But if we're going to deploy our knowledge... If we're going to function as a human being, it's in that environment in which we inevitably make use of others' knowledge in, in different ways. And so it's when we're estimating our knowledge that I think there's a natural propensity to say, oh yeah, I understand because I can operate effectively in this environment.
right? How well do I understand a toilet? Well, geez, I've been using them for decades, right? I understand toilets. It's only when I go through a rather slow, deliberative process of thinking about how the thing actually works that I discover I don't know what I'm talking about. And I assume you probably want your, like it would be, life would be unmanageable if your alarm bell of ignorance, if it was, if it was just constantly going off relative to, point. like, I know my toaster well enough to put my bread in it and everything is fine about my breakfast morning. I know how to use the toilet. I don't fall in and stuff like that. But I imagine that maybe the illusion is less whenever you confront an object for the, for the first time, or if you're in a situation where it could otherwise be dangerous, if you get the mechanics wrong, like, do you actually see the illusion popping in or out under different circumstances? Well, one thing that matters a lot is how reflective people are. There are people who do tend to test their knowledge before they answer questions. Most of us, when you ask us a question, something pops to mind and that's what we report. But there are other people, there are about 30% or so of the population who have a habit of checking ourselves before we speak. And such people don't show the illusion in the sense that their judgment of their own knowledge doesn't decrease after explanation. And I think that's because they try to generate an explanation even before they give their first rating of understanding. Mm -hmm. right? So any condition which elicits that kind of explanation um, is going to show a reduction in the effect. So if someone has tried to do something and failed, then I wouldn't expect to see the knowledge illusion. In the, in the political domain, it's kind of interesting, because I think where you see it most strongly is in cases in which people come to an issue thinking about basic values or general principles, and then you, so you say, how well do you understand? They say, how do you, well do you understand Obamacare? And I say, well, Obamacare leads to universal coverage and medical coverage. And, and so, yeah, I understand it. It's really important. And then I say, explain how it works. And suddenly I have to reframe my understanding of the issue. So I'm not thinking anymore in terms of basic value, but I'm thinking in terms of mechanism. And then you get a huge effect because, in fact, I don't understand the mechanisms of Obamacare at all. The document's too long. There's too many of them. So to some degree, I think it's a matter of simply getting people to think mechanistically. If they're already thinking mechanistically, then I wouldn't expect a, a very large illusion. So one of the practical reasons that I, I am interested in this is, you know, I do a lot of work in public policy settings where we're trying to introduce evidence to inform decisions, to inform where debates go. And there's always the possibility of getting more and more evidence. You never know any, anything perfectly. And so there is this dimension that starts to cut in around when is a, when's the evidence or when's the explanation sufficient? When do, when do I stop asking questions and feel like, I got this, and it's time to move on? Which feels like it's in this space of the kind of illusion of understanding. It's like, when when is my sense of I know the toaster because I know how to put the bread in? Like, I stop there and I feel satisfied and don't feel like I need to go deeper. How do we, how do we calibrate when we sort of figure out the stopping rule of thinking that we know something? Presumably, it 
depends on what we're going to do with the knowledge. We put people in this situation, in the experiments, we put people in a situation where what they have to accomplish is to provide a detailed explanation about how something works. And that turns out to be hard. If what you're trying to do is nudge people to save more for retirement or something, then presumably the right level of understanding is when you're able successfully to get people to save more for retirement. You know, as a scientist, I'm faced with this problem all the time. When can I stop running studies and try to publish? I know people who err on both sides. You know, I was an editor of a journal, and I can promise you there are lots of people who try to publish before they have adequate data. And then there are also people who just keep on running experiments. And you want to say, you know, time to stop and, and, and write it up and think about something different. Um, so there, the deliverable is the scientific article, the scientific paper, right? What the journal will find. So as long as there's a deliverable... It kind of tells you what the right level of analysis is. So what are we doing in political debates then? If we're talking about the ballpoint pen, like if I know how to hold it in my hand and write, that's good enough for me. I don't need to go into the metallurgy. If we're instead talking about minimum wage or health care or something like that, why don't we feel the same impulse to go deeper in those scenarios? So I think what's happening in those scenarios is we're operating in such complicated domains that we can't push down the road. We can't think a few steps ahead. There's evidence, for instance, that chess masters don't even think very many steps ahead. What they're doing is very, very impressive, but it's not foreseeing move after move what's, what's going to happen. And so I guess at some level, we know we're not going to be able to work it out. And so we don't try. And what we do instead is rely on this sense of understanding we have because we've heard from people around us, maybe from our political party or from some thought leader or scientist or something, that this is what we should believe. And so we state it with determination and confidence. My sense of most political discussion is that it's not actually about how things work. Like people don't think multiple steps ahead and often, often because that's not the nature of the conversation, right? We're not trying to understand what the effect of a policy will be. If we did, then we'd probably have many fewer problems in discourse than we have, and much more agreement in part because we would understand how ignorant we are. The problem is that people don't engage in that kind of conversation. They talk about their values. They talk about what's important to them. They talk about who agrees with them. They don't talk about those kind of mechanistic details that I think you're suggesting. If you were the moderator on the presidential debates right now how would you want to structure the format and the questions if we wanted to actually have a different type of political debate <laughs> yeah so in this world or in my ideal world right? we'll go to your right because, let's go to steve's world first <laughs> because they'd be very different right because in my ideal world the candidates would be positioned to talk about what the consequences of policies would be. They would be positioned to talk about 
why one policy or another is going to lead to this consequence or that consequence. And then we could have a discussion about whether they're right or whether they're wrong, namely a discussion about how things work in the world. The problem is that would be really boring, right? And nobody would watch the debate. But the other problem is the candidates know that would be really boring. They're not positioned to have that conversation, right? What they're positioned to do is to fall back on certain values that they believe or certain resentments that they want to foster and develop those and get people excited about those. They want to elicit a lot of clapping in the audience. They want people to go rah-rah. They don't, they don't want people to say, oh, now I understand how that would work. I mean, here again, I'm, I find myself thinking about the the right level of explanation, because I think sometimes, and I don't, I don't know what like the mass survey data on this is, but it's not also uncommon to hear people lament that debates are too shallow, too many talking points, and wish there was a little bit more time to come at this question in maybe a slightly less grandiose way to help think about it. You actually gave an example in the book that I thought was useful around the explanation behind whether a Band-Aid has air pockets air bubbles in it. I don't know if you remember, this is a couple of studies, but it stuck yeah. with me. It was like, yeah. the study setup was if it was, you know, an, a Band-Aid has air bubbles because it helps kill bacteria. That was better than just saying the Band-Aid has air bubbles. But if the explanation went too deep, it has bubbles because it introduces oxygen and then the oxygen can mess with the metabolic functions of the bacteria and then it kills it. Then people suddenly like dislike the Dislike the Band-Aid. They're actually willing to pay less for it. Yeah. This is, again, that kind of like curve on the right amount of explanation, not too little, not too much, that somehow optimally taps into a sense of, of understanding the situation and feeling satisfied. And I, don't, and I guess I can think about it in Band-Aids in a way that's maybe a little bit more trackable than thinking about it in the political space, but it does seem like there's something similar at play there that maybe if we knew more about why people found or at what point people found a satis an explanation satisfactory you could try to design like the quantity of evidence you you generate and present and talk about to be calibrated to that i think the better politicians are already pretty good at that because the answer is most people want almost no detail so, yes, you're right. There, we did do this study. This study was uh, led by Phil Fernback, my co-author on the book. And we did find there was a sweet spot for people. But there were kind of two sweet spots. So for the 30% of the population that's really reflective, they want as much detail as you can give them. Okay? So there is this group of people who just who love that detail, policy wonks. But then there's everyone else, the majority of people. And the impression I have is, yes, they want detail, but they're not so much interested in the detail as they are in the belief that you know what you're talking about. They want the packaging of the Band-Aid to give the impression that this will work without them having to figure out how it'll work. So it's not good enough just to say, this is a Band-Aid, and isn't this a lovely color, right? They want something that says, this is going to, you know, help your cut to uh, heal. But they don't want to know how. 
And I think the better politicians are already pretty good at that, at just sort of giving this impression that they know what they're talking about without actually saying anything of content. Is this a place where you have any thoughts on how to to curate for yourself when you know to go deeper on pressing for questions or to sort of like be, put this differently, when to be more aware of your own knowledge illusions versus when um, you're less likely to be falling prey to it in a problematic way? Is this a space where we could do better um, at not falling into problems because we're having a knowledge illusion? Um, I think so. And in my mind, it would work in the following way. So first, we have to accept that the world is too complicated for us as individuals to understand and that we depend on the knowledge of others. So, you know, on, on, on what the medical system in the U.S. should look like, I'm just, I don't have the 30 years full time that would be required to, to master that subject. So I have to rely on others. So the question becomes, who should I rely on? Right? Name, who should I trust? And that's not a trivial question, obviously. So uh, the question is can somebody provide enough information to me not to explain the whole thing to me? Sometimes I like to understand, but what I really am looking for when I have to make a serious decision is whether the person who's going to give me advice is someone who knows what they're talking about. So if they can give me enough information to convince me that they're trustworthy, that they're providing coherent answers, that their answers are relatively complete, that they're evidence-based, that they're not making stuff up, then I'm more willing to trust them. I could imagine a different direction you could go, Mm -hmm. which is to instead want to probe for just root values is this the kind of person that i trust because they seem to care about the ultimate ends in the same way that i do and this actually seems to be maybe maybe closer to what happens in a lot of politics is like i don't want to i want to know less about your nuanced healthcare issues i want to know more about are you a you know do you share my same family values or my same commitment to this social issue or not and then if, if it's feeling right on that front then I'll at least trust that you're pointed in the same direction, even if maybe from a technocratic standpoint, you're a little bit off. I don't know exactly where I'm going with the question on this, but I mean, if if what you're trying to do is just assess trust, that seems like another direction you could go. It doesn't actually strike me as like a crazy way to approach it. No, and in fact, as as you said, I, I think that's what people do, right? That's our kind of reflexive way of evaluating people. Um, You know, if someone comes and tells me that, they believe that everyone under four foot five should be shot, then, well, I know immediately whether or not to trust them, right? So having common values is really critical. And I think it's something we do tend to establish fairly early on. That's why if someone tells me they're a Republican versus a Democrat, well, it's going to make a big difference to how much I trust them. In fact, there's data suggesting that it does make a big difference to how much I trust them, even in domains which have nothing to do with politics. But that is relatively superficial, right? Like those kinds of values don't explain much about the world. The democratic debates have been going on for the last couple of days, right? And and it's a little painful watching 
the candidates try to distinguish themselves. One question that was asked was, do you believe that we should get rid of private medical insurance? And, you know, the candidates were struggling to have these unique, distinctive opinions. And you just, you know, you knew all of them felt like there should be universal health care and it should cost as little as possible and it should be as effective as possible. And, you know, that's where we all want to end up. But discussing these general values like private health care is good or bad just seem to miss the point in my mind, right? The values just don't grab enough of the variance, right? They don't, they're not informative enough to, to really help me make a meaningful decision. The knowledge illusion seems like it might be having part of the bite here, which is if I, the viewer, yeah. feel like I have a strong opinion on whether you should get rid of private insurance or not, and the knowledge illusion is I think that's a well-thought-out reason I have that belief, then looking at who's raising their hand or not, I use it as a proxy for like, oh, if they agree with me, they must also be super thoughtful about it. Yeah. yeah. No, I, that's politics. I, I love that image. Yeah, that's exactly what goes on. So another intriguing thing you've done, work on and talk about is how the mere act of people, of asking people to explain, does humble, so to speak. You realize your ignorance. Tell me some of the experience you've done showing what, you know, trying to probe whether that actually also depoliticizes folks. So um, the the first experiment is one that I actually referred to earlier. We simply ask people to explain how policy works. And then you ask them before and after how they feel about the policy. And in our studies, we found that it reduced the extremity of people's attitude a little bit. Simply the process of explanation it punctured their sense of understanding and at the same time introduced a little humility in the sense of making people less extreme, less confident about how they felt about the issue. I should say it was a small effect. Um, some people have replicated it. Others haven't. I think that it's going to depend on exactly the issue you're talking about and the context in which the question is asked. But the general um, observation is that asking people to think about mechanism makes them feel a little uncomfortable. And that, and that reduces their confidence a little bit. And that can depolarize, right? People are going to sort of come to the center because they have a little less hubris. More evidence for this comes from studies mostly done again by Phil and um, Lauren Min, colleague of ours, who gave people some issues and framed those issues in one of two ways. They either framed them in terms of mechanisms, so they gave people arguments on both sides that described the good and bad effects that this policy would have and why it would have those effects, or they described them in terms of the basic fundamental values that they represent. So people were either thinking about these in terms of what are sometimes called sacred or protected values, right? Like, what feeling does this give me about right or wrong? As opposed to thinking about them in terms of how they work, right? What the mechanism is that would cause them to change the world. And when what's, they were... What's a concrete example? So uh, one example was, should lion hunting be allowed 
uh, with with a fee. The the mechanistic arguments would be, um, well, if there's a fee, then you could use the money to save lions, right? That would be an argument for, and an argument against would be, um, if you allow people to hunt lions, then they're killing lions, and you can't save lions by killing them. On the value-based side, a pro-argument might be animal life isn't worth as much as human life, and an anti-argument might be life itself is valuable. So you can frame things either in terms of basic fundamental values or in terms of effects and consequences. And when you frame them in terms of basic values, people think the issue is simpler, they think they understand it better, and they think it's less tractable and compromise is less likely. But when they're thinking about it in terms of effects, in terms of consequences, then they think it's more complicated, they think they don't understand it as well, and they think that compromise is more likely. How is this, so this seems like there's lots of implications then for who you surround yourself with, what you're exposing yourself to information-wise. I mean, if you want a creative, socially intelligent group, how should you put those individuals together? Well, there's a lot of work that's been done on that question. And in general, the best teams are those that have a lot of intellectual diversity. People talk a lot about diversity these days. And it's true that diversity on teams tends to be good, but in particular, diversity of viewpoints. Jonathan Haidt talks about this a lot. And the point he makes is that if you want an effective team then what you need is for everyone who feels strongly about something, you need someone who feels the opposite in order to limit confirmation bias, right? In order to always give them someone who's thinking about antagonistic arguments. The best way to come up with a foolproof argument is to have to defend it against someone who really deeply disagrees with it. So that's sort of the most extreme case, I think, of how diverse teams can be effective. But of course, what you also need are norms that make it not only permissible, but encourage disagreement and do it in a way in which people aren't going to get pissed off and stop talking to each other. So you see this a lot, actually, despite everything you hear about echo chambers and bubbles. Scientific teams often involve lots of disagreement, right? When I go to a conference or, you know, there's certain groups like economists are famous for this, right? You give a talk to a bunch of economists, you know they're going to disagree with you within five minutes of you opening your mouth. It can be annoying, there's no doubt about it, but it has a certain value. That is, you have to be prepared to defend yourself. You have to really understand. Um, I think if we're going to make wise political decisions, then we have to make this true on a social level as well. And it seems like the environment where those intellectually diverse views are sort of coming together, there is additional nuance to have the conditions be right to avoid motivated reasoning. Or once you start to get into an argument, under many scenarios, you're not actually really genuinely trying to probe your own beliefs and change them. It's a much more aggressive 
cognitive effort to just convince other people to agree with you. But I take it you're describing a different, like if there's some parameters you can get right, you avoid that type of use of cognition just to get everyone else to agree with you, but somehow open up yourself to be a little bit more receptive to changing your own beliefs. Do you have thoughts on how to land in one condition rather than the other? If a team has the duty to arrive at a common conclusion, then I think you're much, much more likely to be open to others' viewpoints, right? Uh, when I was at grad school, one of my teachers was this guy named Lee Ross, who's a famous social psychologist, who used to point out that when the cardinals had to elect a pope, they always did it. They always succeeded. And it's kind of surprising because these are smart people with very strong views, but they had to agree, and so they did. If a jury deliberating has to come to a verdict, then most of the time it will. There are famous cases where they don't, right, where you have a hung jury. But the need to arrive at a conclusion, I think, is really helpful. I think this is also a place where anything you can do to establish some kind of root shared values on something that's not the active issue under debate mm -hmm. just helps build other channels to realize whoever it is you're debating with is also a good person who means well in the right. world. Right. And it's easy, it's easy to slip past that. I mean, I think it is why if you have a, a relative who's on the opposite side of the political spectrum, you know, the Thanksgiving debate might be a little stressful, but you still listen in a way that is different than if it's a stranger making the same argument so you could sort of vilify as a other that doesn't need to even be sort of considered in the same way because they're somehow, you know, evil or they don't mean well. They want to harm the poor, whatever the case might be. But if it's your uncle and you've seen him be killing with your kids, it's like, you know, that's not true. It's something about the arguments that need to sort of be played around with. And so I think anything you can do to, you know, not jump straight into the argument, but spend a little bit of time connecting in some other ways can often help. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a really great point. Um, there is a slight nuance to it, which is that some of us do have uncles that we have trouble talking to. And, and, I, and I actually think in part that it's exactly what you say. It's a function of the degree to which you think you do have shared values with that person and the degree to which they respect you. Right. Mm -hmm. That's really important, too. And those can be on dimensions that have nothing to do with the topic at hand. Right. The just increasing division of cognitive labor that I think it's fair to say has been happening over time is just more and more technological advances mean we have to become more and more specialized in various professions. Like, Do you think that this means that the illusion of knowledge gets kind of worse over time because there's just so much more outsourcing of knowledge that has to happen relative to Simpler times, if you will. I don't know. I think there are forces that, that cut both ways. It's true that we're more specialized today. On the other hand, uh, we have the tools um, that allow us to think we're doing things in independent ways more than we ever did. We can look up the answers to difficult questions in a moment on Google and 
we can purchase kitchen equipment that allows us to cook, you know, fancy dishes on our own in a way that we never could before. So, in fact, we're relying on other people in those situations. We just don't know it. You know, my guess is uh, that hunters and gatherers uh, way back in the Stone Age also depended a lot on other people and weren't fully aware that they were doing so. You know, they expected someone to cook dinner and someone was expected to go out and hunt. And they, they were just part of the community and this was their contribution to the community. And so it all sort of depends on to what degree you distinguish your own personal identity from the community identity, right? Um, and today, I, I, I think we're more likely to make that distinction because we live in a culture which is about the individual. We're always focused on the individual. But the one consequence of that might be, and I don't have any data to support this, but it might be that um, we're actually more aware of the distinction between me and you, hmm. me and others. I mean, even our conception of thinking, I mean, the statue of the thinker right. is a lone exactly. person. That's right. And much of the rhetoric whenever you're educating is around being able to function autonomously, independently. Exactly. Do you think we should be educating differently in particular ways? And if so, how? Yes. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head. I mean, so much of the discourse in education is exactly about making people autonomous. You know, I go to conferences now about misinformation, about fake news, and what we can do about it. And what I hear over and over is, we've got to give people the knowledge to allow them to decide for themselves. And I just want to shoot myself every time I hear that, because... It just ain't possible, right? People can't decide for themselves. I mean, don't ask me to make decisions about what the U.S. military should be doing in Syria. Like, that's a guaranteed way to dis make the country even worse than it already is, right? <laughs> I can't decide for myself. That's why we elect people who presumably rely on trusted, informed experts. So, yes, I, I think that we have to start appreciating the extent to which we depend on others when we're giving credit, when we're deciding how much people should profit from their actions. Like, I don't actually think that the guy who, who initiated Microsoft should uh, have as many assets as 20% of the world's population or whatever you know, percent, he does have the S. I mean, Microsoft grew because of the work of tens of thousands of people. Bill Gates is a brilliant guy. He made a big contribution. He deserves lots of credit, lots of reward for it. But he doesn't deserve a huge chunk of the gross national product of the world, right? There are lots of people who contributed to that, like including the people who built the roads that allowed him to get to work. So there's definitely a tendency to focus on individuals. As far as education is concerned, there, there actually is a lot of evidence that having people learn in groups is more effective, not just in terms of generating better product, 
but also in having individuals learn. People learn more as individuals when they're, they're learning to take advantage of others and when they have a sense that they're contributing their own expertise to the group. And you think there's specific type of instruction that should be given on how to work better in groups? Or is it a throw everyone in groups and they'll kind of figure it out? They'll bump their way through it, give them enough time. So my students who I make work in groups um, will, to their annoyance, know the answer uh, I have to this question, which is throw people in and let them swim. I, I mean, look, I think that groups have their own dynamics and you've got to let those dynamics play out to some degree. Sometimes they don't work out. Sometimes they're maladaptive. And in certain situations, obviously, you have to step in. I think in general, what you want to do is make sure that the people with the knowledge get the opportunity to speak and that there's certain biases you avoid. Like there's a tendency for groups to focus on common knowledge on, on, on shared information, which is exactly the opposite of what you want them to do. There are a few very general principles like that, but, you know, teams have their own dynamics, and I do think that you have to give some free reign to let them figure those dynamics out. There was one other thing in your book I was curious about, which was on intelligence testing, a suggestion to instead have kind of group intelligence testing or efforts to instead try to map how individual contributes to a group as the more important metric in today's society? Like, is that something implementable? Like, how far do you want to go down in that direction? Well, so first of all, the evidence is pretty strong that measures of individual IQ do not help predict a group's performance. Right? That if you want to predict the group's performance, you have to measure that group's dynamics. You have to, you know, you want that group has to get along. It should be intellectually diverse. It turns out there's some evidence that you want more women in it. You want people who take more turns in conversation. So, and it turns out that these things are just much more predictive than measures of IQ. So... If we could measure how much people contribute to groups, that would be really useful. I mean, if, if I'm choosing a graduate student, it's great if that student knows statistics. It's great if that student has a background in cognitive science. They really have to have read my book, right? Very <laughs> critical. But I also want to know how well they get along in a group. And not just with me, but with my lab. It'll make all the difference in the world to how well they do, whether they'll take feedback well, whether they'll help other people who will then help them. You know, we do live in a world in which there's just so many of us and we learn in such large groups that it's very hard to do this, right? Because you have to do it in a fair way um, where people aren't like, you know, if you put all the, 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 the best, most interactive students together in a group, then they're going to each contribute more than a group that's composed of students who, you know, don't speak the language or something. But in principle, I do think that that's the right way to think about what a person can contribute. 
Steve Sloman, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much, David. This was great. Thank you for listening to 30,000 Leagues. We hope you enjoyed today's deep dive. This episode was hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Jessica Davidson and Aiden Rasmussen. You can find more conversations at 30,000leagues.com or by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep calm and narwhal on. What's your favorite bias? <laughs> My favorite bias? The bias I like the most? Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I guess the planning fallacy, right? <laughs> it allows me to avoid work at all, at all times. <laughs>